Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to LibertyShield.com right now, use the code EPL25 and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy, Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out A Tad Predictable, hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now... On with the show. Whoa! 
What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast. Today is Tuesday. It is the 28th of November. And it's cold. I don't mind telling you, it is cold today. But we'll warm ourselves up by talking about left-wingers today. We did right-wingers last week, do left-wingers today. Then we'll move on to central midfield, defensive midfield, and attacking midfield. We might even do a specific list of deep-lying playmakers to separate them from your defensive midfielders and central midfielders. You know, your Alonzos and Pirlos and Verons and people like that. But today is left-winger day. Some of these might be a little bit controversial because I've pricked about a little bit in terms of positions because I've been trying to look at average position, you know, not just where are you playing right now, but where have you typically played in your career? Again, I've tried to avoid where I prefer them. Last week, I included Neto and Leroy Sané in in right-wing lists, even though... I prefer both as left-wingers. But uh, I've tried to stay as true to where these players have played or and where they play now. So, as always, we'll do Premier League, we'll do World, we'll do All-Time, and then I've got my five favourites. So, Premier League. In my opinion, the best left-winger in the Premier League is still... Young Minson, and I think he's been the best left winger for quite a long time. I know that this season he is playing through the middle. I understand that. I do think that's more a short term thing than a long term thing for Spurs. I think they will look to bring in a number nine and shift him back onto the left wing. Now, he's been brilliant through the middle this season, but you look at the past six years or however long that he played left wing with Harry Kane through the middle. And I've made the case a couple of times. I think there was long stretches where he was Tottenham's best player. And I think the last two seasons that Kane and Son were together, Kane overtook him as Tottenham's best player. But I think before that, it was Son in terms of the goals, the creativity, the tireless work rate. He just has everything you would want in a modern wide player. He's super intelligent. He's a team first player, technical level off the charts, incredible shooting ability with both feet, good crosser with both feet, excellent passer of the ball. And as I said, it works like a dog for the team. So I've got him number one. I've got Raheem Sterling number two. And again, I'm factoring in body of work here. And I know he was poor last season, And his last season said he wasn't great. But look at the four seasons prior to that. Admittedly, he did play right wing in a lot of that. But I'm trying to factor in overall performance, overall body of work as part of this. This season, he has been outstanding. He is the one shining light in a Chelsea team that is a sea of cow manure, trying not to swear. He has been very, very good. And he is single-handedly keeping that team afloat in terms of goals and creativity because Nicholas Jackson, despite the hat-trick against Spurs, is not a proper number nine. Unless you put a Sterling and a Salah or a Sterling and a Son either side of him, you're going to struggle to score goals with Nicholas Jackson playing up front. Now, I like Nicholas Jackson. 
I think there's a lot to like about his game, but he's just not going to be a line-leading number nine. And without Nkunku in the team, the vast burden of the goal scoring is falling to Raheem Sterling. And I think he's been excellent this year. I think his body of work stands up. And frankly, when we look through the rest of this list, I don't know that anybody makes a good case to be above Sterling or Son as the best left winger in the league. Um, Number three on my list, I've gone with Karo Matoma. I think this season he's been good. Last season he was great. The season before that he was good. The consistency of performance is impressive. I love how dogged and determined he is off ball. I like the selfless nature of his game. But he's also just one who's such a joy to watch. And when it's him and a stooping and down that left flank for Brighton, watching them dovetail, it's the best left-sided combination in terms of as a unit that the Premier League has seen, in my view, since Cole and Perez. Now, Liverpool fans will jump up and down and say Robertson and Mane, and they absolutely have a case, but they didn't dovetail and interchange the same way that these two do. Mane plays more as an in, played more as an inside forward. He wasn't holding the width in the way Matoma does. He wasn't playing those intricate one-twos, underlapping and overlapping runs in the same way that Matoma and Astupinen do. Robertson and, and Mane, for sure, a stronger side, but as, as a pairing, I prefer the way these two connect and link up. Matoma number three. This one will be a bit controversial. Number four is Marcus Rashford for me. I know he's having a dreadful season. I'm fully aware of it. And I know that this is the second poor season out of three. But again, I'm looking at overall body of work where it's available. And Marcus Rashford has been outstanding for Manchester United for the vast majority of his career. As a source of goals, as an outlet, under bad managers, with bad teammates, he has kept them afloat. And what he did last season, that run he went on, gets overlooked too quickly. You have to be a very special player to put together a run of form like he put together last season. And that's not the first time we've seen him. Now, it's the best run he's had, but it's not the first time we've seen him put together an incredible run of form. I think Rashford, after Bruno, is the best player in that team. So you go Bruno 1, Rashford 2, and then I think it's a significant gap to everybody else. And I think with Rashford, because he's clearly quite a thoughtful individual, he puts an awful lot of pressure on himself because Manchester United means more to him than it does to anyone else who's involved in that first team. He has come through their academy. He has been thrust into the spotlight and forced to carry the attacking load far too often for a player of his age. You look at the minutes played by Marcus Rashford in his career, and it is quite startling just how much 
he has had to play already in his career. And the concern is that United will burn him out. He's just turned 26 years of age. And he has played a stupid amount of football across his career so far. Like, think of how long he's been in the Manchester United team. And think of the really, really poor caliber of teammates he's had around him in a lot of seasons. Like, he has played 26,000 minutes in his career. If you siphon out, uh, say, 700 minutes for youth games that count, you know, FA Youth Cup, Premier League 2, and UEFA Youth League, you're still looking at over 25,000 minutes in his career. Just for context, Joe Polina is almost four, almost three years older, and he's played far less minutes in his career. Like, Rashford has been run into the ground routinely by Manchester United. And he's been forced to play through injuries when what he really needed was a break from the team. That that 21-22 season, look at what he did the season before. Look how many minutes he played and look at what happened coming off the back of those European championships. He had to go and have surgery that he had delayed multiple times because the club needed him and then because England needed him. And he took an awful lot of criticism because he missed that penalty. I'm surprised the guy was able to stand up. But he's putting together season after season, really impressive numbers. And yes, this is a a poor season so far for him. Nobody's making an argument that it's not. Nobody is trying to claim that Marcus Rashford is playing well right now. But Marcus Rashford, over the course of his career, has played well at an elite level for long, long stretches. And if you look at what he's done for United, 8-18 and in his first season, his first season was 15-16. 15-16, he was 17 beginning that season. 8-18, and 11-53, and 11-52, and 13-47, and 22-44, and 21-57, and then he just breaks down and has five in 32. Last season, he scored 30 goals in 56 games. He doesn't get much of a break. He's had one season, other than his first season, which he only came into the team partway through the year. He's had one season where he's played less than 45, 44 games, and that was that 21-22 season. Other than that, 44, 47, 52, 53, 57, 56. Like, that's a ferocious amount of football to put on a young player. He's also played 59 times for England already and has 17 goals for them. I think Marcus Rashford is... I think he's the type of player who, because he's an academy graduate, gets more criticism than he would if he'd been signed from elsewhere. Like, 
Curtis Jones is the example I'd use at Liverpool. Curtis Jones gets a lot more criticism than he should because he's an academy graduate. And you get people that say stupid things like, well, if he wasn't Scouse, he'd be playing for Wigan with Jamie Carragher's son. Well, first of all, Jamie Carragher's son is also Scouse. So if being Scouse was the prerequisite to stay at Liverpool, wouldn't Carragher's son still be at Liverpool? How does that work? Secondly, do you think Jurgen Klopp is some sort of dumbass who just plays players because of where they're born? Do you think he cares where they were born? The same thing goes for Rashford. I see United fans being overly critical of him because the team isn't performing. Trust me when I say this, it hurts him more when the team doesn't perform than it hurts those fans because he's A, a player and B, a fan. He was a fan long before he was a player. So of course it hurts him more. If he had any way decent teammates around him, Marcus Rashford would be thriving. But look at the money United have wasted on dross around him. Anthony Martial, Anthony, like Sancho hasn't worked out at all. Rashford was key in getting him to join United. He's probably also affected by the fact that his friend, a guy he sees as his little brother, a guy he feels responsible for, is being treated the way he is by this current manager. I guarantee he's right in the middle of that. Not by choice, but because he's one of the senior players now, one of the most important players, and also he's Sancho's closest friend at the club. Marcus Rashford is an outstanding player, and I'll hear nothing to the to the alternative. Uh, number five, I've gone with Gabriel Martinelli. I'd still like to see more consistency. I'd like to see more composure. I'd like to see him learn when to slow down. Everything is a little bit too frantic and frenetic for me, but he's a very good player. Uh, number six, a hair behind him is Luis Diaz for me. Again, with him... He overthinks things too much. When he plays on instinct, he is an incredible player. When he overthinks things and tries to do the smart thing, that's when it doesn't really work out. When he plays on instinct, he almost always makes the right decision. When he overthinks things, he'll often make the wrong decision. He'll misplace a pass. He'll overhit or underhit a pass. He'll skew a shot. But on instinct, Luis Diaz is outstanding, and he's a, a super talented player. There is a gap here. There is a break here. There's a significant drop-off from six to seven. I think you can argue there's a there's a drop-off from four to five. Not a big one. Not a big drop, but a drop. There's a big drop from six to seven. Number seven, I've gone for Harvey Barnes. And again, I know he's not playing much this season because of the injury. Body of work has to factor in here. Harvey Barnes was outstanding for Leicester City. Outstanding, surrounded by players that didn't want to be there anymore. He only left because they got relegated and they kind of needed him to leave because they were losing key players on free transfers and they needed to boost the coffers. And the sale of Madison wasn't going to be enough given they were dropping out of the division. So they had to sell him. I think he would have happily stayed if he'd been given the chance. I think Harvey Barnes is really good. I think he guarantees you 12 to 15 goals, 8 to 10 assists. He's a hard worker. He's versatile. He's number seven for me. 
Number eight, I might be caught up in the moment, but I've gone Jeremy Doku. He's just such an exciting player, and he's one that I've been watching for a long time. And at Anderlecht, he was a sensation. At Wren, when it worked, when it clicked, he was phenomenal. With City so far, it has been clicking. And Liverpool fans might argue, but he roasted Trent Alexander-Arnold multiple times the weekend. Multiple times. Ran past him like he wasn't there. Ran past Matip like he wasn't there. He was really good. The fact that he didn't get an assist is not down to him. It's down to poor finishing. It's down to Liverpool also defending quite well in central areas. I've gone for him. Number nine is Jack Grealish. It's no secret that I'm not a big fan of Jack Grealish. I don't think there's anywhere near enough end product for the amount of ball he has during a game, for the hype around him, for the cost, for the wages. But there's no questioning that he is a talented player. He's a good player. On his day, he's a very good player. He's just not a great player. He'll never be a great player. He's a bit too one-dimensional to be a great player. We know what Jack Grealish is a very predictable player. Everybody knows what he's going to do. At Villa, it was a little bit different. He was a bit more unpredictable. He had more freedom. Pep Guardiola puts him in a system. At Villa, he was the system. Now, my biggest knock against Grealish is he's never had a great season. There's no season you can point to August to May and say Jack Grealish was great August to May. There's that legendary championship season he had. But he missed a large chunk of that season. And the numbers he put up, well, Harvey Elliott went to Blackburn on loan at 17 and put up similar numbers. The second season in the Premier League with Villa, he was very good. But then he missed a large chunk of the season. If you don't have one season that I can look at and say, right, you were you were outstanding August to May. Yeah, you might have had some poor performances along the way because that's natural. Nobody's great every single game. Salah has poor games. De Bruyne has poor games. Van Dijk has poor games. They're the gold standard in this league. But if you have as many poor games as good games, that's that's not going to cut it for me. And last season, a lot of people hyped him up. Oh, we're finally seeing the real Jack Grealish at Villa. He was garbage until February. Awful until February. The poor first season there. He was dreadful the first half, first three-fifths of last season. And then he had a good end to the season. But Villa, or but City were humming. Like it's easy to play well when the team you're in are playing at an elite level. We saw Jordan Henderson have four incredible months because Liverpool were sweeping all before them and it was easy for him. But that doesn't make it a great season. It doesn't make you a great player. It just means that you had a good run of form in a great team that was performing at an elite level. And number 10, I've gone Saeed Benrama. Frankly, it was more down to a lack of other options. I'm not hugely sold on Ben Rama. He's clearly a talented player. I think he's more a 10 than a wide player, but he plays wide for them. He scores goals. He creates goals. He just disappears too often in games for me. 
but I've got him number 10. So Son, Sterling, Matoma, Rashford, Martinelli, Diaz, Barnes, Doku, Grealish, and Ben Rama. For my world top 10, I've gone Kylian Mbappe on the left. So I've gone for him number one because that's where he plays this season. And he has typically always played in a wide role. He's rarely in his career been a nine for a consistent run of games. Now, PSG used him there when he had Mbappe and, sorry, when they had Messi and Neymar. But he wasn't happy in that position. He doesn't want to be a number nine. He wants to play off a nine or in those wide areas. And who am I to argue with Paris Saint-Germain's president, sporting director, director of football, technical director, captain and best player? And maybe also manager and general manager and chief assistant to the general manager and whatever other title he's given himself or been given over the years as they try and convince him to stay there. I've got Mbappe as the best left winger in the world. Now, I know he's played more right wing than left wing in his career. But, you know, you think back to his time at Monaco, playing largely off the left. Bernardo played off the right. Lamar would go to the left wing, but he would start in the left side central midfield role with Fabinho as the six and either uh, Moutinho or Bakayoko as the third midfielder. Sometimes all three of them would play. Lamar would play left wing. Mbappe would play right wing and you'd obviously have Falco through the middle. When Bernardo wasn't available, they'd do that. But I've gone with him left wing because I, I just, he's not a nine. He doesn't want to be a nine. I think he might end up being a nine at Real Madrid, but I don't think he'll be overly joyed about it. I don't know where he's actually going to play. I think if he goes to Real, he might play right side of a midfield, of a, of a front four with Vinicius left side and then somebody else as the nine. Who that will be, I have no idea. That could be what they plan to do with Erling Haaland if they can get their hands on him. And then you'll go Bellingham, Chuameni, and Kamavinga, um, Valverde. I'm not sure who the, how it will work, but I think that might be their plan. Anyway, regardless, he's my number one. Vinicius Jr. is my number two. And of, of actual left wingers, he is the best in the world. That kid is a sensation. It took him a couple of years to find his footing at Real. He moved a little bit too early. But cream always rises. And that kid is the creme de la creme. He is just incredible to watch. An unstoppable force as a left winger. The combination play between him and Benzema over the two previous seasons to this was just otherworldly. And obviously we saw Benzema have the two best seasons of his career, win a Ballon d'Or. He doesn't do that without Vinicius. Number three, I've gone for Kvica Karaczkelia. I, I just, I adore this player. He's so much fun to watch. Last season's performance for Napoli is one of the great seasons I've seen from a winger. I know he slowed down towards the end, but he was phenomenal. He is what people try and make Jack Grealish out to be. As that 
unstoppable dribbler that you need to double up on. The difference is he produces goals and assists at a really high level. He makes the right decision almost every time. I just I think he's a phenomenal player. Number four, then I've gone Young Min Son. Number five, I've gone Rafael Liao. Explosive, clinical, unstoppable on his game. When when it's working for Rafael Liao, he's about as close to an unstoppable force as there is in the game. Like he's you, you often see smaller players be rapid. Rafael Liao is six two, powerfully built. has all the skill, has great composure, can score any type of goal. He's just a phenomenal player. Number six, I've gone Raheem Sterling. Number seven, I've gone Matoma. Number eight, Kingsley Coleman. He would be higher. He would be over Sterling and Matoma if he could stay fit more often. But also, I have to factor in, he does play both wings. Now, I I love the fact... See, when I look at Bayern, I look at Nabry, Sané, and Coleman, and I think that should be... That should be the best group of wingers anyone in the world has. And you can argue that it is. I just don't like the way they're used. Now... For me, Serge Gnabry at his very, very best, remember, he's only 28 years of age, is is a right winger. The best version of Serge Gnabry is one of the best right wingers on the planet. And we've seen it at Bayern. That 1920 season was phenomenal. He hasn't been quite as good since, but he was good last season, the season before. This season, injuries and a couple of factors, he just hasn't been effective. But if I had him right wing, Sané left wing, and then Kingsley Coleman as my third winger, who can play both sides, and I can bring him on left wing and move Sané if I need to, or I can bring him on left wing and have Nabry, or I can bring him on right wing and have Coleman and, and Sané. Like that to me, that is perfection for wing talent. Nabry like I said, is 28. Leroy Sané is 27. And Kingsley Coleman is also 27. They should all be in their peaks right now. They all are in their in their primes. I just don't feel like Thomas Tuchel is getting enough out of them. I think he could get a lot more out of them if he commit to Sané one side Nabry the other and Coleman as the flex who can play either side Coleman can also play as a 10 if need be but you've got Musiala and you've got King, you've got Thomas Muller so you don't need him as a 10 then you've got Harry Kane up front who spoiler alert is the best number 9 in the world and will be number the top number 9 on my list um, but the, the knock on Coleman is he just misses too many games you look at his time at Bayern remembering this is a 34 game league season 23 19 21 21 24 29 21 24 now he has played 10 league games so far this season 
So he's done better with staying fit. But I just he would be higher. He would be higher if not for the injuries and if if Tuchel would use him a bit better. Because you could you could start Coleman right, Sane left, and have Nabry is the one that comes off the bench. Like whatever way you want to work it, you can work it. I just think all three of them are, are special talents. Uh nine, I've gone Marcus Rashford. And ten, I've gone Wolf Zaha. And it's just a personal pick. I just love watching Wilf play. I didn't used to. Wilf used to wind me up no end. Because he'd dive, he would take, make the wrong decision, he was overly selfish. And the more you came to watch him in Palace, the more you came to realise that he has to be selfish because the rest of this team are garbage. And when they started to get better players in, like Eberiezi, uh, like Michael Elise, you could see him start to trust them more. And it took the burden off him. And it actually elevated his game. I would have loved to have gotten him at Liverpool. I'd actually be starting him for Liverpool right now, uh, if he's fit, over Luis Diaz. I think he is a better player than Luis Diaz. Um, But yeah, Wilsa has number 10. All-time list. Now, the rules again... Have to have played after 1970. I have to have seen at least 25 games of this player, and they can't still be playing. There are certain exceptions that will be made. I did make an exception for Trent by accident to put him in my top 10 right back of all time list. Um, that, but that was purely by accident because I wasn't thinking. I made an exception for Messi because it's Messi, and I made an exception for Garincha. So. Trent and Messi as, you know, they're still playing, but Messi is Messi. He had to be in. And Garincha just had to be in. And likewise, the number one player on my all-time left-wingers list has to be in. He doesn't qualify. He did play in the 70s. He played one season of the 70s. Paco Gento, legendary Real Madrid left-winger had to be in this list because he is the best left-winger of all time. He spent 18 years at Real Madrid. had come through at Racing Santander, played one season there, moved on to Real Madrid for 18 seasons. He decimated La Liga right-backs. He won six European Cups played in eight finals won six he won 12 La Liga titles now all of these successes came in the 50s and 60s but for me I don't think there's ever been a better left winger than Paco Gento so much fun to watch old footage of that Real Madrid team the ball going wide to him. Now, remember, he's playing with Puskas and De Stefano, and he is standing out. He is the one that when the ball gets fed to him, the crowd rises up to see what he's going to do. That is the mark of a special player. 43 caps for Spain, never quite translated his international or his club form to, um, to international level, but... 
just a sensational player. Absolutely sensational. Lightning fast, incredibly skilled, scored goals, 129 league goals in 437 league games. Uh, multiple seasons of double figures, which back then was a rarity for a wide player. Like 1959-60, he scored 20 goals in 58 games, sorry, in 38 games in all competitions. Paco Gento, number one. Number two, I've gone John Barnes. I looked at lists of left-wingers for hours. I went through every note I've ever taken looking for left-wingers that I've written down from old matches. And John Barnes is the one that just stands out. Incredible for Watford. World-class for Liverpool. Never translated that to playing for England. 79 caps, 11 goals. Like, it's it's a very, very good England career. But the level of ability that he showed in Liverpool games wasn't something he could translate to England games. But at Liverpool, he was a force of nature. In the late 80s, with Maradona, Hullet, Van Basten, Stoichkov, Hadji, etc., 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 running around the place, he's a top five player in the world in the late 80s. And if not for the ban on English clubs from Europe, I think he would historically be remembered a lot more than he is now on a global scale. He's obviously very highly thought of in England, super highly thought of among Liverpool fans. For me, he's one of the three or four best players to ever play for the club. John Barnes was a sensation. Big, strong, rapid, incredible dribbler. Unbelievable balance. But moulding that with that power to burst away from players. One of the most graceful players in full flight you'll ever see. Moved into central midfield later in his career and could just dictate a game with ease. Outstanding passer of the ball. Always a great crosser. Great set piece taker. Very, very capable of scoring goals. You look at his goal numbers. So, 81-82, he makes his debut for Watford. They're a second division team. He scores 14 and 44 in all competitions. Into the top flight, 13 and 53. Then he goes 16 and 54, 15 and 47, 13 and 50, 14 and 48. And then he joins Liverpool. 17 and 48, 13 in 42, 28 in 44, 28 goals from wide. And that's in a 4-4-2, not in a 4-3-3. 17 and 44, and then he blows out his Achilles. And he's never quite the same player. He loses that burst of pace. He's still an effective player, and he would move himself back into a more centralized midfield position as those years would go by. But that is a nine-year run of John Barnes scoring not just 10 or 11, 
but 13 or more goals for nine straight years in England's top flight. 10 straight years doing it when we include that first season in the second division, which was his debut season. He was 18. He was 17 when the season began. He was 18 by the end of it. John Barnes was incredible. Number three on my list is Pavel Nedved. Now, some people see him more as an attacking midfielder. He played left side of a midfield four for almost the entirety of his career. With Sparta, with Lazio, and then with Juve, he played left side. European Footballer of the Year in 2003, wrongly deemed to be some sort of robbery. Yes, Henri was incredible. Yes, I would have voted Henri. But Pavel Nedved was stupidly good that season as well. Like, stupidly good. Carried Juventus to a European Cup final, missed the final through suspension, and then obviously they lost that final. If he plays... I have no doubt they win that they win that uh, European Cup final. No doubt at all. He was incredible for Lazio. One iffy season where he was just dogged by injuries, 98-99. But either side of that, he had two great years. Vital part of their title-winning team. It's often forgotten, by the time he came... To uh, well, by the time he moved to Juventus, he was already 29. Like he was 24 joining Lazio and then spent five years there. He's 29 when Juve spent big money basically to replace Zidane. Like, think of that Zidane was the best player in the world. This guy was signed to replace him, and you can make a really strong argument he was better for Juve than Zizou was over the course of his his tenure there. Stayed with them when they got relegated, helped them get back up, dedicated to the cause, an outstanding player at international level, 91 caps, 18 goals, part of that Czech team that got to the European Championship final in uh, 96. Won a league title with Sparta, a league title with Lazio, and four league titles with Juve, though two were later taken away. But those players won those titles, and that's all there was to it. Uh, won the Cup Winners' Cup with Lazio as well, and won multiple domestic cups. Like I said, he won the Ballon d'Or. He was Serie A Footballer of the Year and Serie A Foreign Footballer of the Year. He's UEFA's best midfielder in the same season. That 0-2-0-3 season, he was stupidly good. Stupidly good. And yes, I would just have Henri a hair ahead of him, but it is a hair's breadth. It's not a robbery. It's often tagged as one of the great robberies. It's bullshit. Bullshit. It's not a robbery. Nedved was incredible. Uh, number four on my list, Oleg Blokhin. Russian, Ukrainian, well, Ukrainian by birth, USSR by uh, international games. Um Spent 19 years with Dinamo Kiev, was a vital part of Lobanovsky's incredible team there. Won eight league titles, two European Cup winners' cups, <clears throat> five Soviet cups, won the Ballon d'Or in 1975, was also 
the International Olympic Committee European Football of the Year that same year, Ukrainian Football of the Year nine times, five-time top scorer in the Soviet Top League, which was a very, very strong league back in those days. Playing from wide, prepare yourself for this. 15 and 35, 23 and 42, 28 and 42, 23 and 36, 10 and 28. It's a down year. 19 in 35, 17 and 38, 19 and 34, 22 and 42, 23 and 43, 10 and 31, 10 and 34, 12 and 36. If you thought he was slowing down, 18 and 40, 12 in 37. And then his final season with them, 5 in 26. At that point, he was past his best. He moved on, played out his career with uh, Vorhoats in Austria and then with Aris Limassol in uh, Cyprus. He was 36 by the time he left Dinamo. Had a journeyman managerial career, but 112 caps for his national team, 42 goals. Sensational player. Absolutely sensational. And it's important that we remember that before the fall of the Berlin Wall and the kind of reunification of Europe, not just Germany, but Europe as a whole, the opening up of Eastern Europe, there were incredible players whose entire careers were spent playing in the Soviet top league, which was very, very competitive. And he is the best of them. An incredible player. Um, He's number four. Number five, Hmm. Ryan Giggs. But because he's a terrible gang of lads, we're not going to say anything more about him. Uh, But he deserves to be number five based on his playing career. That's just how it is. Uh, Number six. Again, I've had to break the rule of 1970 or afterwards. But I have seen 25 games of him as I have with with, with Gento. For him, it's mostly international games that I've been able to see. Zoltan Sibor, the left winger in the Magical Magyars Hungarian team of the 1950s, a team best known for Puskas and Coxes. This guy on the left wing was just a genius, an absolute genius. Impish would set out to embarrass fullbacks, defenders, midfielders, whoever came to tackle him. He'd beat them, and then just because he'd beaten them once, he'd go back and beat them again. Or if they had the nerve to take the ball off them, off him, he'd go take it back off them, beat them twice, leave them in a heap on the ground, and be seen smiling as he ran away. A sensational player. One of the great, great players that's just always overlooked and always forgotten. Spent his club career with Ferenc Varos, Cespel, Honved, and Barcelona. Played for a bunch of other clubs as well. Guest appearances here, there and everywhere. But they were his main clubs. Had some time at Roma. When he was trying to escape um, Hungary, as as most of the players did, because they were under... What was the occupation, I suppose, is the the best way to describe it. Um, Yeah. There's There's some games you'll find of him at Barcelona 
with Ladislav Kubala, uh, another incredible Hungarian player who should have been part of the the great Hungarian team of the 50s, but because he left the country, wasn't able to go back and play. And he he might have been, after Puskas, he might have been the best Hungarian player of that era. And they were that good without having him available, which is pretty incredible. Um, but yeah, I mean, Sibor for me, when I was looking at left wingers, there was no way he wasn't going to be in my top 10. And he's worked out at number six. Number seven, I've gone Roberto Revelino, Brazilian left winger, part of the 1970 World Cup winning team. A phenomenon for Corinthians, very good for Fluminense. Was one of the first to like really big names to go to the Middle East and take the big bag of money that was on offer. 92 caps for Brazil, 26 goals. Like I said, World Cup winner in 1970, one of the best players in that 1970 team. Just a phenomenal joy to watch. One of those kind of magical players who invented, like he invented the the flip-flop, whatever it's called now by fancy people, that's what it was called back in the day. And all of the top players that we talk about, from Romario to Ronaldo to Ronaldinho, he's not on the same level, but Marcus Rashford, all of them have copied it. Few of them will know where it came from. Cristiano does it as well. Hazard did it. Most of them don't know where it came from. It came from him. He's the one that mastered that skill. Now, he did often play as a 10, but from the games I've seen playing left wing, He's in as a left winger for me at number seven. Again, I've broken the rule, but again, this player just can't be ignored. It's Billy Little, arguably the best player in Britain during the 1940s and 50s, particularly the mid-1950s, where he had a sensational run, playing left wing for Liverpool. Liverpool at the time, nicknamed Littlepool, which will tell you his influence on them. A sensational player. Hard to get footage on. Very, very hard to get footage on. But there's enough games to cobble together from the 50s just about that you have to really dig in, though. You you have to make some phone calls and send some emails. Um, I probably haven't seen 25 games of him, but I'm putting him in anyway. I, it's probably more around 18 or 19, but he's going in regardless. Uh, 29 caps for Scotland, but he played for an English League 11, Scottish wartime team, Football Association 11, Royal Air 11, because remember, he had to go and serve in the Army, or in the Air Force in his case, during the World War. His career got interrupted by the World War. Um, Incredible. Uh, Number nine, we've gone Robert Perez. He's just one of my favourite players of all time. I thought he was incredible for Arsenal for his six-year stint there. He's very good at Villarreal. He'd been great at Mets. Not so good at Marseille. He did okay at Marseille, but not as good as he was at Mets and certainly not the level he was at Arsenal. He popularised the inverted winger. 
Now, Arsenal had done it before him with Mark Overmars, but it, even before that, Paul Merson, right-footed, often played left side, and Andreas Limpar, right-footed, always played left side. But if we look at the game and how it is now, it stems from him and what he did at Arsenal under Wenger, dovetailing with Cole, linking with Burkamp and Henri, that left side, especially with Henri shifting out there, that was just unstoppable. Absolutely unstoppable. Um, two league titles with Arsenal, two FA Cups, won a cup with um, won a cup with Marseille, won a World Cup and European Championship with France. Was footballer footballer of the year in two thousand and two. Just a, f- a fantastic player and lots of fun to watch. And another one that was lots of fun to watch rounds out my top 10 is Frank Ribery. I think he's one of the greatest dribblers that's ever been ever been born. Just incredible close control, incredible balance. 5'7", slightly built, but strong as an ox. Great passer of ball, endless energy. He embarrassed, I would I would estimate, and I can't obviously guarantee that this is true, but I would estimate that no winger in the history of the game has embarrassed more fullbacks than Frank Ribery. And he took incredible joy at doing it as well. He had a journeyman career up until he landed with Bayern. Uh, Boulogne, having left the Lille Academy in strange circumstances, Alez, then Brest, that's where he started to really gain attention. Went to Mets, didn't like it there. Went to Galatasaray, really didn't like it there. Went to Marseille and was adored and really did kind of set out his stall. And then Bayern came in from. Now, at this point, he's 24. And Bayern are to be his seventh club. And there's a lot of questions around is his personality going to mesh well there because he's quite feisty? Is his ego going to get in the way? I mean, Bayern are ego FC, so that was never going to be an issue. But 12 years at Bayern, and if not for injuries, he'd be higher on this list because he did get a lot of injuries over the years. But watching Frank Ribery square up a fullback and then sit them on their arse is one of the great joys of the last 20 years in football. If you didn't enjoy watching Frank Ribery play, I don't know why you watch football. Absolutely sensational. I love the fact that he went to Syria when he finished with, with Bayern because he could have retired. He was 36 years of age. He'd accomplished everything. There was nothing left for Frank Ribery to do. He'd won one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine league titles, six cups, a Champions League, a bunch of Super Cups, a World Club Cup. Didn't need to do anything else. He went to Fiorentina and he embarrassed defenders left and right. Spent two years there. And then he went to Salonatana and he just continued to do it because he wanted to play because he loved playing. And he was just 
he was phenomenally good to watch for Salonatana because he was like this old Jedi who'd just look at a defender and they just fall down because he wanted them to fall down. Kept them up, extended his contract, realized that his knee was not allow, going to allow him to play. And rather than sit on the bench or sit in the stands and take money off a club, he retired because he wasn't going to be worth his wages and he wasn't going to be a burden on the club and he wasn't going to be a distraction to his teammates, to the manager and to the club and he retired. Frank Ribery was just, like I said, an absolute joy to watch. 81 caps, 16 goals. Uh, unlucky not to make this list is Robert R- Rob Resenbrick. Red, Red, uh, sorry, Rob Resenbrick. the Dutch winger in the 1970s who played for Anderlecht. He is arguably the greatest Anderlecht player of all time. Um, Played for the Netherlands in the 74 and 80, sorry, 74 and 78 World Cups. It just, just one of them that you have to love watching play. Because you know, sometimes a guy just gets the ball and you just think this is going to be fun. And like Ribery was one of them and Revelino was one of them. And now you've got Vinicius and Kavicha and Matoma and you watch them. And you just think you're just going to roast that fullback and this is going to be fun. And that's what he was. He was just fun. He was great. He was genuinely great, but he was he was fun. Nicknamed the Snake Man because of how he would move. That graceful, sliding, swaying, weaving type. Two league titles, two Belgian Cups, two Cup Winners Cups with Anderlecht. Also won a Belgian Cup with Club Bruges before joining them. Like I said, part of the uh, Netherlands squad that was runner-up in 74 and 78, the World Cups. They were also, remember, third place at the Euros in 76, and he was part of that. Um, Yeah, two-time Ballon d'Or runner-up, which, remember, playing in Belgium. Which was like an an alternative to the Ballon d'Or. He's the all-time top scorer in the Cup Winners Cup with 25 goals, which is Pretty impressive. 251 goals from 544 games in his club career, 14 from 46 for his national team. Um, Yeah, just a great, great player. Fun. Just fun to watch. And that's that for me is what I'm looking for. Uh, Right. Five favorites then. Uh, I've gone Barnes. I've gone Ribery. I've gone Nedved. I've gone Killy Gonzalez. I've talked with him a few times. I, just, I love the fact that it was so simplistic. Knock it by the fullback, run really fast, and hit it as hard as you can. Simple. Brilliant. And um, last one then of my favorites, uh, I think a very underrated player, is Vicente Rodriguez, the great Valencia uh, winger of the 2000s. Had played at Levante, 
played then for Valencia, would join Brighton and finish his career there back when Brighton were uh, a championship side. Um, I just loved watching him play. A lot of injuries. Injuries spoiled much of his career. Like, he was on a great trajectory. 3 4 he was unbelievable. And then he just couldn't stay fit after that. He had one season where he managed to play more than 25 games in all competitions. He played 38 in 08-09, scored 10 goals. When, when they got Joaquin, I remember thinking, this is going to be sensational. You've got Joaquin one side. You've got Vicente the other. They're going to be nearly unstoppable down that down the wings. If they don't need a whole lot else, because they've already got remember, um, they've got David Villa, who was eh, pretty decent, I would say. They've got David Silva, so there's your your ten and your nine. They've also got at that time Juan Mata. That should have been one of the most entertaining teams that we've ever had. Like it genuinely should have been with two roadrunners out wide. If you could have found a way to get Silva and Mata in that team with Villa, obviously Villa would have started. You also had Pablo Hernandez, who was a really fun player as well. That should have been. So Ruben Baraka was still in that team. David Albelda was a really good holding midfielder, Raul Albiol and Carlos McKenna as McKenna as the centre-backs, Asier Del Horno at left-back, Hedwiges Maduro was in that team, uh, Churro Hernandez was there, or Churro Torres was playing right-back, Hugo Viana, another super-talented young player. That team had so much talent, potential. Uh, an old Fernando Morientes is still there. All they were really lacking was a good goalkeeper and fitness. And unfortunately, fitness avoided them as well. Um, So, yeah, that's it. Vicente Rodriguez is my number five of my favourites. We'll go to break. We'll come back. We'll do news and gossip and we'll be done. I'll see you after this. Right, welcome back. So, we had one game in the Premier League last night. Fulham beat Wolves 3-2. Alex Iwobi opened the scoring on seven minutes after good work down the left by Anthony Robinson. Matthias Cunha equalised on 22 minutes. Then we had some controversy when Fulham were awarded a penalty. I think it was a penalty. I understand Semedo makes contact with the ball. However, he does not win the ball or dispossess Tom Kearney. Kearney retains possession of the ball. And in the second action... He is fouled. It is a foul. Down he goes. Penalty is given. I think it's the right decision. I would, however, say that I think Lamina was fouled earlier in the build-up to that. Lamina has the ball. He's the victim of a crunching tackle, I think, from Harrison Reed. I think that might be a foul. But... The game goes on. Kearney gets the ball. I, I do think he was fouled. I know Gary O'Neill said a big tantrum about it. I do think it's a foul. 
Willian steps up and scores. Uh, then on 75, Huang steps up and scores. Then the second penalty that Fulham get. I think this one's a little bit more controversial than the first one. The foul is given. It, no, to be fair, it's not either. It's not either. It, it, it is a penalty. It is a penalty. Zhao Gomes miscontrols the ball, stretches out. Wilson comes in, nicks it away from him. I, it is a foul. It is a foul. Give it. Give it. It's given. Penalty. Willie Ann scores. I know Gary O'Neill is annoyed, and I, look, I can I can understand him being annoyed, but I, I genuinely think the first penalty is absolutely a penalty. Yeah, and the second one as well is as well. There's there's no real complaint to make. I'm sorry, Gary O'Neill, but unfortunately, you don't actually have a real case here. Uh, what that means is Wolves stay twelfth but Fulham jump to 14th, uh, a much-needed win for Fulham, it must be said. And they're now level on points with Wolves, but behind them and Crystal Palace on goal difference. We have Champions League action tonight. Kicking off in eight minutes is Lazio and Celtic, as well as Shakhtar, Donetsk and Antwerp. And then we have six 8pm kickoffs, Milan versus Dortmund, Feyenoord versus Atletico Madrid, PSG Newcastle, Barcelona Porto, Young Boys against Red Star, and Manchester City against RB Leipzig. I think it's fairly clear that the games worth watching are Milan Dortmund, Feyenoord Atleti, PSG Newcastle, and Barcelona Porto. And even Barcelona Porto, I don't think there's a whole bunch of reason to watch it, but you know, there's some good players on display. I think it really does come down to the other three. and. I mean, it, it really does come down to the, the Newcastle group. PSG at home to Newcastle. The Tuna missing a lot of players. And then Milan against Dortmund, I think, should be a really good game. So there you go. That is what we have tonight. Uh, we have some news. Phil Jagielka has retired from playing at the age of 41. Uh, he obviously spent his career with Sheffield United and then 12 years at Everton. That he played for Derby and Stoke. He was released at the end of last season and he's made a decision to retire. I think there had been some talk that potentially come January he might sign with the club and provide some veteran leadership to maybe a championship kind of club. But he's made a decision to retire. I think he's had a tremendous career 40 caps for England, a career that spanned 23 years. 756 club games, 40 for his country, 805 total games, 46 total goals, including an absolute howitzer for Liverpool against Everton, for Everton against Liverpool, rather. Um, yeah, I, I think just a, a really good, never great, but really good player who was honest as the day was long organized his defense very, very well, played in some pretty good Everton teams. And for a fellow that cost four million, I think they got great return on investment there with 12 years of service and 385 total games. Um 
yeah, just a very, very good player who had a very, very good career. And, you know, he's been through some some hard times over the last few years with the death of his brother. But I think I think Phil Jagielko always held his head high. Uh, there's a really good story on the BBC website that I want people to read. It's uh, about the Chinese Super League. I think people should have a look at that. It's very, very good. We have been informed that the are, that there are plans, or sorry, there's been a recommendation for plans to introduce 10-minute sin bins for cynical fouls and dissent. Now, they've been trialled at grassroot levels, and the results have been quite good. Uh, Pierre-Luigi Colina has said that he thinks this is a, a good idea, a positive thing, and something to move forward with. He is the chairman of the FIFA Referees Committee and sits on the governing body's technical subcommittee with IFAB to basically make these changes to the rules of the game. I have to say I'm kind of in favour of it. I think it could be very, very interesting to see what it would be like. An orange card, so to speak. Yeah, I think I'm in favour. Now, look, it could turn out to be a disaster, but I'm in favour of at least trying it and seeing how it works. It might be a disaster. Who knows? There's another really good, actually two really good pieces on the um, BBC website. One about Terry Venables and how his attacking game is the foundation of QPR. And one about the statue that's been... uh, unveiled at Man City of Lee Bell and Summerby, which I talked about a few weeks ago. So uh, do check that out. Uh, on to the gossip then. Manchester United have made inquiries about Timo Werner and could make a bid in January. I see that one as a little bit unlikely. Arsenal lining up a move for Douglas Luiz with Thomas Partey's Gunners future uncertain. Why would you sell your six and sign a player who's not a six? I think that's lazy journalism, if I'm honest. Juventus are considering signing Partey, which could help fund Arsenal's bid for Luis. I don't think Thomas Partey's got any real value. I'm not actually sure he's going to be allowed to leave England. So, you know. Uh, Manchester City and Liverpool are keen on Louise. I don't believe Liverpool are. Unai Emery says Villa do not intend to sell Louise, which makes sense. He's been great for them this season. Chelsea are plotting a one-in, one-out transfer policy, which could mean several players leaving to make way for new signings. Chelsea are plotting a lot of things, but have no real idea what they're doing. Among the the Chelsea players that could leave is Thiago Silva, as well as Trevor Chalab. I think everybody's already known they were leaving. That's not news. Uh, Manchester United have made Mark Guehi their top target in January. Yesterday, the same people saying this said that Jared Branthwaite was the top centre-back target. So, you know... Uh, Manchester City and Arsenal are interested in Francesco Camarda. Again, I think this is lazy journalism as it was yesterday. Tottenham and Arsenal are keen on Fjorn, uh, sorry, on Feyenoord's 22-year-old Mexico striker Santiago Jimenez. I do really like Jimenez. I do. I really like Jimenez. Scouts from several Premier League clubs have been watching Hitafe's 22-year-old English striker Mason Greenwood. No, they haven't. No, they haven't. This is a lie. This is trying to make good with the fact that he's a dreadful gang of lads 
and really, really should not be playing professional football. No Premier League club is going to sign him. And he's also not Hitafe's. He's Manchester United's on loan at Hitafe. Newcastle could make a loan move for Hugo Ekatiki in January. Manchester City and Arsenal have, spent, have sent scouts to watch FC Copenhagen's 15-year-old midfielder, Tristan Altprof Panduro. Don't know anything about him. Jacob Murphy of Newcastle is attracting interest from Crystal Palace and Nottingham Forest. I, I think Newcastle will keep him. I, I don't see that they would they would sell him. I think he's too important to them as a squad player. Um, it's always interesting when you see Jacob Murphy and his twin brother, Josh, uh, were at Norwich together, came through the Norwich, Norwich Academy. Um, they broke through kind of the same year, 2013. And it's just funny that Jacob's career has gone one direction. They've, he had so many loans, Swindon, Southend, Blackpool, Scunthorpe, Colchester and Coventry before he really got an opportunity, made the most of his opportunity at Norwich, got his move to Newcastle, had a couple of loans from then, one to West Brom, one to Sheffield Wednesday, but he's turned himself into an important player there. His brother had loans at Wigan and MK Dons, got his opportunity a little bit earlier at Norwich, um, had more of an opportunity there. He ended up going to Cardiff. He's at a loan at Preston, and now he's with Oxford. Um, and I remember when they were when they were kind of just breaking into the team. I think Josh was the more highly regarded of the pair. Um, but yeah, I think Jacob Murphy will end up staying at Newcastle. Uh, Crystal Palace are monitoring Steve Cooper as a possible replacement for Roy Hodgson. Interesting. Barcelona want to keep Uruguay defender Ronald Arejo despite interest from Bayern Munich. I think there'll be a lot of interest in him. Uh, Garrett Southgate is expected to hold talks with 18-year-old Manchester United midfielder Kobe Manu to try and convince him to pick England over Ghana. Uh, he is English by birth, but obviously has Ghanaian parents. He has played for England at underage level. I think it's a little bit early. I mean, he's played one Premier League game this season. He played one Premier League game last season. He's got four senior games under his belt. Yes, he was good against Everton at the weekend, but let's not pretend like he was a an all-encompassing, you know, world-beating performance. Everton got outplayed. Everton outplayed United's midfield for large stretches of that game. So let's let the lad develop before we start, you know, trying to force him into a national team. He's a long way from ready to play for England. And that'll do. That is all I have for today, folks. I will see you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.